So as Andre did mention, today is Father's Day, but I am not a father. So if you thought we were going to have a Father's Day themed sermon, no, (laughs) we're not. So instead, I thought we would talk about something that we can all relate to, certainly something that I can relate to. So we start off talking about neighbors. Sarah and I, we have had our fair share of bad neighbors. In our first apartment complex, when we, just when we got married and we moved in, the, the people that lived above us, we had a couple of young 20-something boys. So they liked playing their music very loud all day, all night. And anytime we'd go upstairs, we'd be like, do you guys think you could turn it down a little bit? The answer that we usually got back was something that resembled no. And at the same time, we also had neighbors that were behind us that threw parties all night. They would sometimes go till 3 a.m. And unfortunately for us, their outside balcony, where they would be chatting and having fun, their balcony was a few feet away from our bedroom window. So naturally, we get to wake up at 3 a.m. to people chatting and laughing and having a good time. So that wasn't fun either. And later, we moved into the apartment that we live in today, and we've had some good neighbors and some not-so-good neighbors. On multiple occasions, maybe three or four times maybe, we have had water come into our apartment from the apartment above us. Let me tell you, waking up at 2 a.m., can you hear water pouring into your apartment? Not fun. (laughs) We've had neighbors that have broken into our cars, We've had neighbors that we've called the cops on, and we've had neighbors that just generally made it miserable to be at home. But we have also had neighbors that introduced themselves to us with a plate of homemade brownies. That was nice. We've also had neighbors that helped move our furniture out of our apartment. One time our apartment flooded and Sarah and I happened to be hundreds of miles away on vacation, but we had our neighbors, they helped move our things out of our apartments as it was flooding. We've also had neighbors that we've invited to church and we've had neighbors that we've prayed with. Now, why God puts some people in our lives at certain times is a mystery to us. And it's certainly easier to love neighbors that are nice back to us and people that treat us with respect. But it's much harder to love someone when you feel like you have nothing in common with them or when you feel like they don't care about anybody else but themselves. But, of course, Jesus does say to love your neighbor as yourself. But what does he mean by that exactly? What is he talking about? Who is our neighbor, and how should we love them? When Jesus says, love your neighbors, what does that mean for me, personally? Because when I see my neighbors, and I walk past them in our apartment, we wave, we say hello, we smile, they seem fine. It seems like most of their needs are being met. And if my neighbor really needed anything. They could always ask me, right? They could come up to your door, they could knock and say, hey, I need to borrow this, whatever, like that, and I'd be more than happy to help them out. But could you call that love? 
Jesus didn't just say, love your neighbor as yourself, and leave it at that. He actually defined that statement very specifically in one passage. If you would like to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, we'll be starting at verse 25. So Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25, it says, Just then, an expert in the law, this would be a lawyer, stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, if we pause for a moment... Jesus was actually asked this question about 19 times in the Gospels in various forms. People keep asking him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think it's also worth noting right now that no one, with the exception of Jesus, no one has actually been able to do this. No one has been able to love God with all of their strength, with all of their mind, and with all of their soul and their neighbor as himself every day of his life. We have all failed. We have all fallen short, which is why we need God's grace. Continuing on in verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, like we all do, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him and beat him up, and then they fled, leaving him half dead. Now a priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And in the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And then the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you have to spend." Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed him mercy, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Let's pray for God's word as we consider the scripture. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word, and we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you also for every opportunity we have to gather together in your name and to be able to praise and worship you for all that you've done for us. We pray also for our brothers and sisters in the mission field overseas. We know that 
sharing your word can be dangerous in many countries and that choosing to follow you can mean excommunication or even death. So we continue to pray that your will will be done on this earth. And we pray also for the leaders of every nation that they would have their eyes and their ears opened and that they would receive you into their hearts. We thank you for loving us unconditionally. And we ask that you would help us to love one another just as you have loved us. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, before we get into the heart of the sermon, I just wanted to make a very quick side note about eternal life, because that's what he's asking about. So when does eternal life begin? Does it begin the moment you die? No. Eternal life actually begins the moment that you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You see, many people in this country have religion, but they don't have Christ. They are alive on the outside, but dead on the inside. Romans 6 says, We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You see, eternal life in this context is not like drinking from the Holy Grail. It's not about staying young and never getting old. Let's talk about spiritual life. So if we get back on track to our main text, I think it's interesting that Jesus first answered this man's question with a question. Now, why did he do this? Because Jesus knew that this lawyer was testing him, right? He was an expert in the law. So Jesus said, what does the law say? Now, the law expert replied by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which is part of the Hebrew Shema. It's a Jewish prayer from the Torah. And he also quoted part of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Two verses that summarize some 600 laws in the scriptures. So the lawyer was giving a very technical answer. And if you've ever spent any time around lawyers, no. <laughs> or if you've watched any TV shows or movies that in a courtroom setting and so on, you've probably heard the phrase, the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law, right? <laughs> He's like, where are you going with this, Sean? <laughs> clearly, clearly this lawyer knew the letter of the law. When Jesus asked him to answer his own question, he knew what the law says. Now, if you were to go to one of my neighbors and say, do you know who Sean Kenny is? Is he a good neighbor? Does he love you? What do you think my neighbor's response would be? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't, don't, don't answer that question. In, that's, uh, in your, answer in your own head. Um, yeah, so a few of my neighbors know my first name. I don't think anybody knows me by my last name. We don't really have that kind of relationship. 
Um, they would probably say that I'm a good neighbor. We're quiet. We're peaceful. Um, but I'm certainly not convinced that anybody in my, uh, in my neighborhood would say that I love them. But that's not their fault, right? That's my fault. But if I'm supposed to build God's kingdom, if I'm to obey the greatest commandment, then what part am I playing in building this beautiful neighborhood? You see, at this point in the story, it's clear that the expert in the law was not happy with Jesus' answer because the lawyer was then left to answer his own question. So he asks another question. Who is my neighbor? And it's not enough to just have the command, love your neighbor, because that's too general, too broad, too open to interpretation. So at this point, we can conclude that he's not asking because he wants to learn what he must do to inherit eternal life. He knows what the scripture says. He wants to know what Jesus would say. Now, many religious leaders back then, they preferred technicalities over ethics. When Leviticus 19 says, love your neighbor, the concept of neighbor must be clarified. It has to be defined. What are the limits? Who is my neighbor exactly? And the Jews spent a lot of time answering this question. And what they concluded was that other Jews were their neighbors and everybody else was not, meaning Gentiles. For example, if a wall fell down onto somebody on the Sabbath, the law would permit them to remove the rubble to see who was underneath that wall. If it was a Jew, they could pull him out. But if they found that it was a Gentile, you would leave them there. So that is the context behind this passage. And today, we generally associate that term, the Good Samaritan, with someone who is nice or generous, perhaps. If you drop your wallet on the ground and somebody returns it to you and all your cash is still there, all your credit cards are still there, being a Good Samaritan, right? But that definition really does lack the depth, I think, of what Jesus was talking about. So let's take a closer look at exactly what Jesus was saying when he was asked, who is my neighbor? You see, the road to Jericho was very dangerous. And this is the same path that you would take if you were to go around Samaria. The Levi and the priest probably lived to the north, and they were willing to take this dangerous road rather than take the safe road through Samaria. Why? Well, who are the supporting characters in this story? You have the priest. They administered all the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem. And you have the Levites. And they're from the tribe where the priest would have come from. And they would have assisted the priests in the temple. And then you have the Samaritans. The Samaritans were part of the last ten tribes of Israel. See, 700 years prior to this, the Assyrians captured people, took them off, wiped out northern Israel, and took most of the people far away. But a few poor Jews were left in the land, and when the Assyrians moved back and took other nationalities with them, what happened was a lot of the Jews that were left ended up intermarrying with this other nation. So in a Jewish person's mind, a Samaritan is not a pure Jew. 
But the Samaritans' ethnicity wasn't the only problem. The Jews also disagreed with their theology. See, the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Bible, and then they threw out the rest. They only believed in the Torah. So everything else past Deuteronomy, they don't read. They also even have their own temple where they worship. So to a Jewish person, a Samaritan is seen as a half-breed and a lawbreaker. And that's what leads to this very bitter conflict between the two of them. In fact, in 128 BC, a Jewish leader led a revolt against the Samaritans to wipe them out, and they destroyed their temple, and it was laid in ruin for almost two centuries. Later, the Jewish historian Josephus wrote that in 9 AD, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the gates of the temple were left open, Samaritans came into the temple grounds, and then they scattered human bones all over the temple, which would have made it unclean, and the Jewish people would not have been able to worship there. So when the group of religious leaders asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, he has the nerve to make a Samaritan the hero of this story. But as we look at this story, what can we learn from this example that Jesus gave? Well, the first thing I think we could possibly learn is that maybe we need to spend some more time outside. Follow me here. Jesus said, But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. This Samaritan was on the road. He was living his life. And when the opportunity came by, he seized it. Now, how often do you suppose opportunities like that come by you? Statistically, not very often. In fact, according to an EPA study, they have estimated that the average person spends 93% of their entire lives indoors. 6% of that time is spent in your car, by the way. That means that if you are waiting for some divine appointment to share the love of God with somebody outside of work, outside of the grocery store, then you are narrowing yourself to 7% of your life. Opportunities may not always come to you. You may have to go to them. You may find it hard to love your neighbor from inside your home. You may not get those opportunities if you continue to stick to a normal routine doing what you always do. When the Samaritans saw the man from Jerusalem, he had compassion for his neighbor, right? Seeing led to compassion. Compassion led to helps, and then helps leads to love. Let me ask you something. Do you think that God would move somebody to live next door to you? or in your neighborhood because you live there. Have you thought about that? You are his disciples. You are his representatives. You could be a local missionary. God wants you to be observant, to see the neighborhood. We may think that we live in these perfect little houses with nice manicured lawns, but behind many of these closed doors are people in crisis. They look good from the outside, 
but they're slowly dying on the inside. I think the second thing we can possibly learn is to simply cross the road. Twice in Jesus' story, the other people passed by on the other side. Two holy men can't be bothered to cross the street. But the Samaritan went to him. He bandaged his wounds. He didn't wait for his neighbor to ask for help. He made the journey. He crossed the road. And we might be thinking to ourselves, again, if my neighbor needs something, they can simply ask me, right? My door is always open. That's a great saying. But what would you do? Would you go up to a stranger if you had something going on with you? Or would you stay inside? That's probably what I would do. It's normal in our culture to keep our problems to ourselves, to be self-sufficient, to not rely on anybody else. Because in our society, asking for help is a sign of weakness, right? If you're asking for help, then you've made some bad decisions in your life that the rest of us haven't made, right? Everybody else is doing great. You should be able to handle this on your own. Now, I'm sure many of you are aware that recently two very high-profile people, a celebrity chef and a fashion designer, recently took their lives, only three days apart. Two people who had everything going for them. They had fame. They had fortune. Thousands of people who loved and adored them. But none of that mattered. For years, these two individuals were at the top of their game while hurting on the inside. Now, these recent suicides have brought up the conversation of depression in America. And despite that we live in one of the greatest countries, at one of the greatest times in history, where food shortages are a thing of the past, where life expectancies are higher than they have been in centuries, where we have technology that keeps us connected to our friends and loved ones 24 hours a day. But despite that, depression is actually on the rise in America. In fact, just in the last 10 years, depression among teenagers has increased by 37%. That's huge. And a recent study found that, quote, the increase in rates of depression was most rapid among the youngest and the oldest age groups. The, the lowest income and the highest income groups, and those with the highest education levels. These results are in line with recent findings on increases in drug use, deaths due to drug overdose, and suicide. You know, I think we fool ourselves when we look at the demographic of the people that live in the neighborhoods around this church. We see the, the affluence. We see these nice cars, these nice houses, they live these great lives. Surely, all of their needs are being met. But statistically, these people need you the most. The truth is that they don't have everything. Everything is not fine. And the only way you're going to find out how to help them is by going to them, by crossing the road and going to where they are. 
I think the third thing that we could possibly learn from this is to simply invite people to church. Verse 34 says, Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. In other words, the Good Samaritan took a broken man to a place where he could be renewed, refreshed, and healed, and to recover. Now, where is that place? Isn't that the church? I mean, in the story, he takes the man to a hotel, right? But if hospitals had existed back then, he would have taken him to a hospital. But have you ever thought about the church as a hospital? I would argue that we should think of the church more like a hospital and less like a country club. Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, the healthy don't need a doctor. The sick do. Jesus said that this was why he came. He came for the lost. He came for the broken. He came for the poor. He came for the sick. Now, what has the church been for you? What has it been for your family? Hasn't it helped you? And don't you want the same thing for your neighbors? The Barna research team interviewed over 300 people in the U.S. and in Canada, and what they learned was that of people who do not go to church regularly, meaning two or fewer times per year, they said that they found that 96% of people who responded said they would go to church if they were invited. That means that more than 9 out of 10 people who don't go to church said they would go if they were just asked. Maybe the decline in church attendance in our country is our fault. Maybe fewer of us are inviting new people. So Jesus tells this story, and rather than answer the man's question, he asks his own question. He says, which of these three proves to be a neighbor? And you'll notice that the man's response is not the Samaritan. He doesn't say that. He says the man who showed him mercy. Now, here's the difference between these two questions. With the man's question, he points to the other guy and says, is he my neighbor? But with Jesus' question, you point to yourself and you ask, am I a good neighbor? You see, Jesus' response goes against what we expect from the world. The world is always wanting to put limits onto who you can love and how you can love them. You can have this wall, and you say, I love my family, I can love my friends, people at my church, but not these people. They don't deserve my love. You know, and we've heard this parable thousands of times, right? And yet we still ask the question, who is my neighbor? Because we can always find someone who doesn't fit our definition of neighbor. But in the Bible, it's never a question of who is my neighbor, but who am I as a neighbor? Because, see, there are plenty of unchurched people out there who can love others just as well as we can, perhaps sometimes even better. And to the world, how are we seen? We're typically seen as people are, we're mostly known for the things that we are against, right? The things that we don't like, the things that Christians hate. That's how we are seen. 
But Jesus says that the world should know us by our love. In God's eyes, which is better, to a person who loves or a person who doesn't? That's what this whole story is about. Remember, the Samaritans reject most of the Old Testament. Jesus also had that moment where he talked to the Samaritan woman at the well. He told her, your beliefs are wrong. He said to her, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. He wasn't afraid to talk to Samaritans. He wasn't afraid to tell them, your beliefs are wrong. And he also wasn't afraid to make these people a hero in his story. Put it another way, what is more important? The way you live or what you believe? Now, I think if you get hung up too much on this, you might be missing the point because God wants Bible-believing Christians who show it by loving others. Good doctrine and good works go together. James, the brother of Jesus, agreed with this. James wrote, What good is it, brothers and sisters? What good is it if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now imagine I'm driving to church, and I see one of you guys on the side of the road, your car's broken down. And instead of stopping to help you out, which I would totally do, instead of stopping, I just keep going. So, you know, I got to get to church on time. going to be late. This, this would, you know, hold me up. I'd be missing the entire point of going to church in the first place, right? This question of who is my neighbor can't always be defined using words, but we can be a good neighbor. That's what this whole, that's what makes Christianity different from every other religion, right? It's the love. Love is at the center of all of this. They will know that we are Christians by our love. One of my favorite songs, by the way. Is that how your neighbors know you? Is that the reputation that you are making? We live in a society where everyone is expected to fend for themselves. We see other people's burdens and we say, that's their problem. That's not my problem. God helps those who help themselves. It's not written in the Bible. At least not my Bible. The Bible says that we are to bear one another's burdens, right? We're told to care, to encourage, and to love. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, Sean, I have been a Christian for longer than you have been alive. I'm 36, by the way. So do the math. You're saying, I've heard the Good Samaritan story hundreds of times, maybe even thousands. I know all of this right? It's an old story. And if that's you, then you are absolutely right. You do know all of this. It's not a new revelation. It's not new secret knowledge. However, I want you to think about the priest 
in this story. Why did Jesus include the priest? Jesus could have mentioned the Levite passing by and the deeds to the Samaritan would have been exactly the same. So why include the priest? Perhaps, perhaps it's because the priest is like the lawyer in this case. Or perhaps the priest is like you. The priest certainly knew the laws. He knew what God's word says. He could quote scripture to you all day long. Would it be fair to say that the priest had faith? Yeah, he probably did. But James doesn't pull any punches when he says faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, one of my favorite quotes is, if you want better answers, you have to ask better questions. So here are some tough questions that I think that we need to ask ourselves. First is, am I a good neighbor? How can I love my neighbor better? Who have I ignored on the side of the road? Perhaps the hardest question that we need to ask ourselves is, if I am not loving my neighbor, is my faith dead? Now, the good news is that you can make a difference in someone's life today. It can be as simple as praying for your neighbor, the neighbor that lives across the street. It could be as simple as praying for your neighbors in Africa, your neighbors in the Middle East, your neighbors in Russia and in China. It can be as simple as saying, how are you doing today? Not as you walking past them, but stop, look at them in the eyes, expecting a real answer. Here's another question for you. What does it mean to love someone? How would you define love? Think about the love that you have for your spouse or for your parents. Think about the love you have for your children or for your brothers or sisters. How do you show them love? Now, when God says, love your neighbor, why do we automatically change that definition of love? Are we supposed to love everyone else differently? Say, probably not. Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself. We need to be proactive with our neighbors. Don't wait for them to come to you. As I mentioned before, people are most likely not going to walk up to you with their burdens. Think about all the things that are going on in your life and in the lives of the people around you, even in this church. We have broken relationships. We have illnesses, lost jobs, financial burdens, and the loss of loved ones. Now imagine going through all of these things alone and without God. The people around you, your neighbors, your coworkers, strangers at the supermarket, they are all going through these things too. And they need you. And they need God. Now, anytime I bring up this topic of going or doing, or if I'm hearing a sermon similar to this about reaching out to your neighbor, I start to sympathize with my fellow introverts. I am an introvert, by the way. 
we hear sermons like this and we think, well, that's fine for the extroverts, those people that are, you know, happy to talk to just strangers and everybody's a friend of them. It's good for them, but that is not how God made me, right? I remember when I was in junior high, we were going to go on a short-term mission trip, a local mission trip. We were going to go to the inner city L.A., really sketchy part of Los Angeles. And in preparation for this mission trip, they took us to a local mall, and they told us, you need to share the gospel with at least one person before you leave. Like, that was our assignment. And it may have been like two people, but like at least one person. And given this assignment, I was terrified. And I felt like I was dying on the inside. You know, I do not like going up to strangers, you know, just say, hello, you know. <laughs> Very uncomfortable. But as I grew older, which, by the way, I did do it, and it was awful, <laughs> awful experience. So, yeah, but that's another day. <laughs> as I grew older, I realized that if I was going to take part in the Great Commission, then I had to find a way that I could share God's love with people comfortably. I didn't have any problem talking about God or talking about the Bible or Jesus or anything like that. That wasn't the problem. It was simply talking to people I didn't know, talking to strangers. And I knew that I was comfortable talking about these things with friends, so I decided that I was just going to have to start treating people like they're my friends. In other words, instead of thinking of everybody else as a stranger, I have to consciously think of them like they're already a friend of mine. Now, I'm certainly not saying that I talk about Jesus with every person that I meet. I also don't take advantage of every opportunity that God gives me. Because this message is just as much for me as it is for anybody else. But, of course, that is why... We thank Jesus for his unending grace. He is patient with me as I grow in my boldness. He knows my weaknesses. He's helping me to love my neighbors more. So my questions for you. Are you crossing the road to help your neighbor? Or... Are you passing by on the other side, like the priest did? My hope for you today and every day is that you would grow in your love for the Lord and that you would show that love to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read your word, help us to apply its message to our lives. One of my greatest fears is that you would look at me and say that my faith is dead because it doesn't produce any works. On the road to your heavenly kingdom, we do not want to pass by our neighbors and to leave them alone and dying. Please give us a strong compassion for the lost and help us to love them as you love them. And may we always trust that you will provide the means for us to help those in our lives. And may we always rely on your strength. Amen.